Anthony, can I get some of those meds? <laughs> they seem to be doing the business this morning. <laughs> no, but it's really, really good to, to have you with us, especially if you're visiting, also uh, if you are joining us online. If we haven't met before, I think I've met most of you, but if, you, if we haven't met before, my name's Gareth. Uh, I'm privileged to serve on the leadership team here with Anthony. We have lots of fun, um, as, you, as you can see, uh, but it's really great to be with you this morning. Uh, this morning, we're in week two of looking at the life of Joseph. And uh, for quite a while this year, we've been looking at the lives of some Old Testament individuals. Uh, before Easter, we were looking at the life of Jacob, uh, and Joseph is in fact one of his children, one of his 12 children. Uh, and the reason we're doing this is because we get to see the different ways that God breaks into people's lives. Uh, and we see God breaking into Jacob's life in the midst of dysfunction and sin, much of it from within himself. He was a liar and a cheater. He scammed his brother, lied to his father. Those are just some of the high points. Um, but um, we see, despite that, God breaking in. Uh, when we consider Joseph's life, we see God breaking in uh, in circumstances of dysfunction and sin, not so much from within Joseph, but from those around him and in the midst of betrayal and incredible suffering. Uh, last week, we looked at the reality uh, that his brothers ended up first plotting to kill him, uh, then selling him into slavery when they realized that there was a quick buck to be made, lying to their father. Uh, and we saw that their hot attitude was not something that just happens overnight. Uh, we saw how initially they had some hatred of him, and, and some of their feelings were even justified because of the favoritism that their father showed to Joseph. Uh, but then we read on two more occasions, their hatred grew and their hatred grew, and it became jealousy. Uh, and we saw how even in our own lives, if we allow our hearts to continue down trajectories of resentment and hatred and jealousy, even if we don't end up doing those same things, we, we, we end up pretty much in our hearts in exactly the same place that they were. And then we saw the incredible grace of Joseph, uh, a picture of what Jesus does for us as later on in the story, he actually ends up forgiving his brothers. We're going to pick up the story this morning right where we left off after Joseph has been sold into slavery. So let's read from Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and with him there, he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome and good-looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, A lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. 
How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, and we can speculate why that was, she caught hold of his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called out to the members of her household and said to them, see, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought amongst us came into me to insult me, but as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, that is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Let's pray and then we'll unpack this chapter. Dear Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you because you are worthy and because your word is worthy of our focused attention, because your Holy Spirit is worthy in changing our lives. And so I want to ask that you would come and fill me and fill each one of us with your spirit, that you would come and speak to us by your word, that we would be transformed and live lives to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, an interesting chapter of scripture. Joseph is sold as a slave. He rises to prominence. He's accused of rape or attempted rape. The text is actually a little bit unclear of exactly what she's accusing him of. Uh, either way, it is a horrendous accusation, and he ends up in jail. Now, if you uh, were in youth when you were a teenager, you might have heard this text preached. It's a very well-known text, and if you heard it preached in youth, uh, you probably would have heard it preached as an example, Joseph, as an example of saying no to sexual temptation. Anybody heard it like that when you were in youth, right? Okay. Um, Joseph is this incredible example of saying no to sexual temptation. Yeah, he is in the midst of this incredibly difficult situation. He has been sold as a slave. Everything has been taken away from him. Um, and we're told by psychologists that it's when we're in stressful situations, when we're tired or hungry or things are going really badly, that is when we are most prone to do things that we otherwise might have had the willpower to say no to. And yet Joseph, in the midst of this incredibly difficult situation, somehow finds it within himself to say no to Potiphar's wife. I mean, just put yourself in his situation for a moment. Everything has been stripped from you. You've been betrayed by your own brothers. Your position of prominence and prestige has been completely taken away. You have no hope of ever seeing your family again. 
And all of a sudden, you receive the attention of this very powerful, prominent person. You might be a little bit flattered. You might be a little bit like, hey, actually, actually, I do deserve a little bit of joy. I do deserve a little bit of pleasure. Things have been going so badly for me. Everything's been taken from me. I don't know where God is in the midst of all of this. Hey, I might as well you know, just get a little bit something for, for myself out of this. Could any of you picture yourself maybe going down that line of thought if you were in that situation, or is it just me? No, each, each one of us, I think, well, let me not speak for everyone else, I, I could see myself going down that line of thought if I was in that kind of a hectic situation. And all of us, maybe not quite to the extent of feeling that entitled, hey, I've gone from the position of favored son to slave, but I think all of us at times we faced with temptation, sexual or otherwise, and we might have a bit of sense of self-entitlement. Hey, look, actually, I, I do deserve that. Actually, things have been going badly for me. Actually, life has been unfair, and, and there should be something in this for me, shouldn't there? And yet we see Joseph as this incredible example. And Moses clearly wants to draw our attention to the situation with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Not just because of what he does in this chapter, but because of the way that he sets up his whole story. It's actually really, really interesting. From Genesis chapter 37 all the way to Genesis chapter 50, we have one uninterrupted story of Joseph with one exception. It's an uninterrupted story of Joseph. Even when it, the, the scene changes back to his father and his brothers, it's all about them needing to go down to Egypt where Joseph is. It's still Joseph's story, even when the scene changes, with one exception. And that's Genesis chapter 38. You see, last week I preached Genesis 37. Genesis 39 picks up immediately after Genesis 37. But for some reason, Moses interrupts the story in Genesis 38, and he takes us on a complete tangent. I mean, it is a weird chapter. I can't unpack all of it because I'd have to get into some Old Testament law around marriage. But kind of the, the big thing that happens in Genesis 38 is that Judah, Joseph's brother, and his sons commit a series of sins all in relation to marriage and how Old Testament marriage law instructed them to act out certain situations. There's a whole series of sin all around marriage, including prostitution and all sorts of stuff, but it's all focused on sin against marriage. And Moses interrupts his otherwise uninterrupted story of Joseph's life to say, okay, this is what Judah was doing, Judah and his sons, and there's all this sin around marriage, and then he continues with the story of Joseph, and all of a sudden we see Joseph saying, no, I'm not gonna sin against God in the area of marriage. I think you'll agree with me, it's probably not a coincidence that Moses put Genesis 38 where he did. He wants to highlight Joseph's faithfulness around marriage in particular, around sexual sin. And each one of us, to varying degrees, will, has and will face temptation around sexual sin. Whether it's pornography, whether it's flirtation with someone that we're not married to when we're married, whether it's having an actual affair, whether it's sleeping with someone that we're not married to, whatever the situation, all of us will face temptation, and Joseph provides us with a phenomenal example. He says, I will not sin against God in this way. 
He's an incredible example to us. And yet at the same time, that's not particularly helpful, is it? Just looking at Joseph as an example, it's like, okay, great, he's up there. Sometimes I find myself down here. You've got to give me more, Gareth. Like, okay, fine, he's an example. How does that help me? In fact, maybe for some of you, as I lift up Joseph as an example, maybe that's actually not helpful and actually almost a little bit condemning. Like, okay, yes, Gareth, I know I should be there. Okay, thanks, he didn't want to sin against God. Well, I also don't want to sin against God, and yet sometimes I find myself falling into these temptations. Simply saying to me, Joseph didn't want to sin against God, and he's the contra example to Judah in the previous chapter, whose family was mired in sin, doesn't really get me anywhere. And that might be because I don't think the point of the chapter is Joseph said no to sexual sin, be like Joseph, even though sometimes we hear it like that. Sometimes we, we get a little bit bigger and we say, well, you know, he wasn't just uh, saying no to sexual temptation, but he must have been incredibly faithful and hardworking, right? I mean, everything that happened in Potiphar's house prospered. Everything that he was overseeing in the jail prospered. It might be that Potiphar was also the guy over the jail. That's very possible. But either way, wherever he was, things were prospering. And so not only did he say no to sexual sin, he was also faithful, and then we come up with this message of kind of like, be faithful and say no to sexual temptation and God will prosper you. But is that what's actually happening in this chapter? Because Joseph has gone from here, a beloved son, and he's crashed down to probably starting on the bottom rung of servanthood, maybe sweeping the stables or something, I don't know. And then he's risen, but he's only risen up to here Yes, he might be powerful in Potiphar's house, but he's not a beloved son. He's still a slave. And the next moment, he comes crashing down to here. And yes, he might rise in prominence in the jail, but he's still a prisoner. And so clearly, the message is not be like Joseph and life will be great, at least not in the way most of us would define great. What is actually happening here? Well, Moses doesn't, Moses, I keep saying Moses because Moses wrote this in case you didn't know. Moses doesn't just want to draw our attention to what Joseph did, but actually what Joseph does is bookended on either end by what God does. It's like it frames what Joseph's did. And it just allows us to get a proper perspective. When we see that framing, it allows us to, to get a proper perspective of what Joseph is doing and how. Because the text starts and ends with the Lord was with Joseph and caused everything that he did to prosper. And it's repeated, not quite word for word, but certainly idea for idea. The Lord was with Moses, uh, with Joseph. Everything he did prospered. And the person in charge of him didn't have to worry about anything under his care. Could turn his back, leave him for days at a time, and things would just go well because the Lord was prospering him. And it doesn't actually say Joseph was faithful in what he did. Now, he must have been, because I don't think that Potiphar's barns were prospering when Joseph forgot to give the order to go and harvest the field because he was too distracted and wasn't working hard. And I don't think Potiphar's herds were doing well when Joseph forgot to tell the servants he has the milking schedule because he was, you know, just unfocused. I'm sure that he was faithful, but the point of the text is not his faithfulness. 
The reason he prospers, according to what Moses wrote here, his master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So we begin to get a slightly different perspective. God is doing something here. God is the one who is prospering him. God is with him. God is faithful. Now, if you were with us before Easter and you heard us preaching through the life of Jacob, particularly Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel, then these words would sound very familiar to you. Because when we preach through the life of Jacob, what we saw is that God comes to Jacob at Bethel and he has this dream, sees angels ascending and descending, and God says to him, as, as he was leaving the land, God says to him, I will be with you and I will cause blessing to come upon you. We go, okay, that sounds remarkably like what God is doing here with Joseph. And if we think about Genesis a little bit more, we go, okay, God didn't just say that to Joseph and to his father Jacob. He also said it to his grandfather Isaac. And it's actually the promise that he made to his great-grandfather Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abraham, I will be with you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless those who bless you and through you, all the inheritance of the earth will receive a, all the nations and people of the earth will receive a blessing. And so as we begin to zoom out, we begin to see that this is not so much Joseph's story as it is God's story. This is God who was faithful to his promise to Abraham, his promise to Isaac, his promise to Jacob, proving his faithfulness yet again in the life of Joseph, in crazy circumstances, in the midst of betrayal and in the midst of suffering. The one thing that is consistent in the story, other than man's sinfulness, because that's consistent in the story, is God's faithfulness to his promises. God started with Abraham saying, through you all the nations will be blessed and I will be with you. And in Genesis 15, he said to Abraham, but along the way, you will become oppressed by a foreign nation and spend 400 years there. And Jacob must have, Joseph, sorry, must have heard that growing up. He must have heard those stories of his great-grandfather and his grandfather and his father from his father of God's faithfulness and what God had promised to do. And so this story, this chapter 39, is not just about, or perhaps even primarily about, Joseph saying no to sexual temptation and being faithful. It is about God's faithfulness. One of the things that can be helpful when you are wrestling with a chapter like this is to go, well, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about Joseph? What does the rest of Scripture have to say about it? And it's quite easy to find out. You go to Bible Gateway, you type his name into the search bar, you flip through all the passages that are directly about him, and you find some other passages that speak of Joseph. Psalm 105 Psalm 105 is a psalm of giving thanks to God for what he's done, and the way that the psalmist gives thanks to God is he recounts God's faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and when he gets to Joseph, he says the following, when he summoned famine against the land and broke every staff of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord kept testing him. So when the psalmist wants to recount what happened with Joseph, the focus 
is not on Joseph saying no to sexual temptation. The focus is not on Joseph's faithfulness. The focus is on what God was doing through the entire nation and Joseph's part in it. He sent a man ahead of them because he knew the famine was coming. We see God writing a story of his people. In Acts chapter 7, we see the first martyr in the Christian church, Stephen. And he's been kind of put on a mock trial, basically outside. They're getting ready to hurl stones at him because he's following Jesus. And the way that he chooses to defend himself before they get impatient and they stone him is he recounts what God has done through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he says of Joseph, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favor and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So when James, to defend himself, wants to speak of the life of Joseph, he doesn't focus on Joseph's faithfulness. He focuses on how God was with Joseph in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being put in prison, and how God rescued him and caused him to be raised up to Pharaoh. Last passage we'll look at outside of our text in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions about his burial. What's happening there is right at the end of Exodus, some of the last few lines of Exodus, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is about to die and he instructs his sons and his family, hey, when I die, we're in Egypt right now, don't bury me in Egypt, preserve my bones and take them back to the promised land because he's somehow come to realize by faith what God is doing. That that promise from Genesis chapter 15, you will be oppressed for 400 years by a foreign nation before God brings them back to the land. By faith, he's realized that is what is in place right now. That is the course that God is unfolding. And so as we zoom out beyond just, hey, this is what Joseph did, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing this is about God being faithful to his promises. That's the bookends of the chapter. That's the framing of the chapter. God has been faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph himself. We see that God has a plan and a purpose that is far, far bigger than what Joseph is going through in the moment. That's what we see in Psalm 105. Before the famine, he sent a man ahead of them. God is in sovereign control, and even when it feels like your life is spinning out of control, God is working plans and purposes that you are not yet aware of to influence the people around you, some of the influence you might not even ever realize. But that is what God is at work doing. From Stephen, we see that it is God who raises Joseph up. Yes, he must have been faithful. Yes, he said no to sexual temptation. That is a part of it, but that is a response to what God is doing. God sent him there, and God is the one who raises him up. And in the midst of all of that, we see from Hebrews chapter 11, that through these incredibly difficult circumstances, Joseph is able to trust in what God is doing and what God has said. 
in the midst of incredible difficult circumstances. Fettered with irons, Psalm 105 reminds us. This has not been thrown into prison. Not that prison today is pleasant, it isn't. But it was far more unpleasant where you might spend many hours of a day literally chained to the wall if you were in prison. And there's some incredible principles that we can apply to our own lives and we can understand how God works. Firstly, we see it always begins with God's faithfulness, not our own. It always begins with God's faithfulness. And because of that, it depends on God's faithfulness, not our own. What God is doing in and through us ultimately depends on who he is and what he has promised. And we have greater promises than Joseph had. The promises to Joseph from God was, I will be with you and I will bring you back to the promised land. The promise to us is, I will be with you in a way that Joseph didn't experience as the Holy Spirit is poured out in our hearts and we receive eternal life. God's life here and now that transforms us and carries on into eternity eternity because God's word says all our sins have been taken away and everything that would separate us from God has been nailed to the cross and we stand free in God's presence. How much greater are God's promises to us? How much more brilliant? It begins with God's faithfulness to his promises. Whatever situation you are in, just as with Joseph, God has not abandoned his promises to you. God has not abandoned his salvation of you. God has not abandoned you to circumstances. We need to realize from Joseph that our circumstances don't define God's presence and God's prospering of us. Our circumstances don't define God's presence and God's prospering of us. You see, we tend to understand prospering as everything in my life is gonna go really well and the boss of my company, the company's gonna suddenly blow up and get an IPO and he's gonna realize it was all due to my hard work. So he's gonna give me 50% of the shares in the company and suddenly I'm gonna be a multimillionaire and I'm gonna to retire to the beach. Sounds like prospering, right? Yet somehow we see Joseph prospering as a slave, we see Joseph prospering in prison. And sometimes it can feel like if our life is not on that trajectory, whatever that trajectory means for you, perfect marriage, perfect job, perfect house, perfect kids, whatever that trajectory is for you, it feels like if our life is not on that trajectory, then well then God must not be with me. God must not be prospering me. And then the story of Joseph slaps us in the face. And any reading of Joseph that says, well, the, the basic idea is that he went through difficulty just so that God could ultimately raise him up. Yes, that's true. That's true. Psalm 105 says he was tested by the word of God until these things came to pass. But if that's the sole focus and you miss what must have been years of slavery and years of being in jail. You don't just go from rocking up in Potiphar's house one day to being in charge of everything that he doesn't even bother to count the petty cash toll at the end of the day, let alone the bank balance. You don't go from one to the other overnight. Even with God prospering you, that's gonna take years. 
And we're going to see next week how he must have spent years in prison because months go by and then events happen and then more months go by and then he's forgotten. And, and so yes, it is true that the word of God is testing him and it's growing him and his character is growing in all of this and God will do the same with you. But if you think that just leads to health, wealth and wisdom, I don't know, that's not what we see here. God is prospering him because he is growing him. Hebrews chapter 12 says, we're disciplined as sons and daughters and discipline is never pleasant, it is painful. For Joseph, it goes on for years and any one of us looking at the situation from the outside would not define that as prospering and would not define that as God's presence. And yet that is exactly what God is doing because number one, Joseph has no idea what God is doing in his life and he has no idea about God's bigger plans and purposes. And sometimes we in our individualistic worldview get so caught up in what does this mean for me and how am I doing right now and we miss that God places us into community and into communities and into a family like this one and into other families in our workplace and our extended family, our community around us. He places us there not just for our own sake. One of the biggest things we see with Joseph is how what seems to be this inconsequential life of slavery and prisonhood, God ultimately is going to use to define the course of a nation. And I'm not saying to you, God is gonna use your life to define the course of a nation, he might. But what I am saying to you is you don't realize the plans and purposes and the broader impact that God has for your life. And your faithfulness then matters because of that. It starts with his faithfulness to his promises. And because of that, it never rests on our faithfulness. And when we mess up, his faithfulness carries us through. But that doesn't mean that our faithfulness doesn't matter. Oh, it matters. It doesn't depend on our faithfulness, but it matters because God has plans and purposes to impact lives beyond ourselves. And sometimes it might just be that in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of pain, that's when God's presence is with you and he is prospering you, not in your bank balance, maybe not even relationally with the people closest to you, but in his intention, his relationship with you. And you're leaning into him and you're trusting him. Trusting that 400 years and then his promise will be fulfilled, whatever that looks like for you. We have to redefine what God's presence and our prospering looks like. And ultimately what it looks like is us drawing near to God by faith. Not by our ability to always get it right, but by faith that he has got it right. And the more we lean into him getting it right, and the stronger our faith becomes in that as we see him come through for us, that's when we can get to the kind of faithfulness that Joseph exhibits here. It's not helpful to hold up Joseph as an example of faithfulness and say no to sexual temptation if that's all we're gonna say about it. But when we see how he's able to say no, that's when it gets helpful. The how is what we can tap into. The how is because we see in Hebrews chapter 11 that he had faith in God's promises. 
God's promise was bigger than this temporary thing that he could gain if he just said yes to part of his wife. And it wasn't just bigger in the abstract. He must have been holding on to that. It wasn't just a theory out there that he kind of gave allegiance to when he, guess he couldn't go to church or whatever they were doing in those days because he was a servant, a slave. But it was bigger than an abstract principle. It gripped his life so that his faith was so much bigger than this temptation that came upon him. And that is what God's desire for our lives is. It's not just to white-knuckle it and to say, no, 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 and, and, and I think I can, no. God's desire is for his love to so grip our hearts, for what he has done on the cross to so grip our imagination that faith rises in us because he has been faithful to his word that pushes aside desire for lesser things. That's how Joseph is able to say no to temptation because his faith carries him because he knows that God is true to his promises. And the same is true of you and me. God is true to his promises. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, God is true to his promises. Whatever health challenges, whatever financial challenges, whatever relational challenges, grab a hold of the story of Joseph as God was faithful to Joseph, to his promises and to rescue him. So God will be faithful to you. He's proven it over and over and over again. And he's ultimately proven it by giving us his son, Jesus.